We're in Romans chapter 9 today. If you don't have a Bible, then please take one of the black Bibles on the end of each pew. And that Bible should be on page 946. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself at all, then please just take that one home. It's our gift to you. Let's read together uh, Romans 9, verses 30 through 33, as we continue to work through the book of Romans. It says, What shall we say then, that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I want you to imagine a scene of a race that's about to happen. 400-meter race at the Olympics. And imagine that there's a runner who's getting ready to run, and he steps up, and he puts his foot on the block, and he listens for the starting shot. And as soon as he hears it, he starts to run and to sprint around the track. And then halfway through, imagine that suddenly, out of nowhere, there's a hurdle. And he didn't see it coming, and he runs right into it, and he stumbles, and he falls to the ground, and almost everybody else in the race does the same thing. But when the people who are standing around uh, the outside of the track, the crowd who's watching, when they see the hurdles, they leap for joy. And just a minute later, just imagine that what's happening is that the Olympic officials are going around into the crowd and giving out gold medals to the people who jumped on the sidelines and letting all the people in the race except for a very few, leave empty-handed. Now, that may sound like a strange story, but that's the story that's told in these verses. This is the story where uh, there is actual kind of running race language in these verses, and that's the story that's told, that there are those who were out running the race, pursuing a goal, pursuing a gold medal, who have stumbled and fallen over a hurdle that they didn't see coming, while people who were on the sidelines, who weren't even in the race, weren't even trying, have now been awarded the gold medal. Now, why is that? Well, it's because it's talking about those who would pursue righteousness by way of works versus those who would pursue righteousness by way of Christ and faith in Christ. That's what it's talking about. You've got the people who run toward the goal of being righteous in God's sight, who trip and fall, and the people who weren't concerned at all with being counted as righteous in God's sight, who now have been justified, counted as righteous before God. Now, as we come to this place, where we've got a little bit of a turning point at verse 30 in the way that Romans is flowing. Romans chapter 9 10 and 11 is a major section of the book of Romans, or the letter of Romans, you might say. And this whole section is dealing with the hard question that he brings up at the beginning of chapter 9 of why is it that so, so few 
of the Jewish people have embraced the Messiah that God sent to be the Savior of Israel? And why is it that so many of those who have embraced him have been Gentiles? Does this mess up the plan of God? Does this nullify the promises of God? And the answer to that is no. Now, of course, he says at the beginning of chapter 9, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. He talks about how he could even imagine himself substituting himself for them in hell because he loves the idea of his brothers in, in Israel being saved. He loves that so much. Of course, that's not something that's possible. But he has a real heart for them. He's about to reiterate that when we get to the beginning of chapter 10. My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So he is desperately seeking and praying for those among the people of Israel, the Jews, to be saved by turning to faith in Christ. But the hard question is, why have so few done that so far? Why is it that so many who have embraced the Messiah of Israel have not been from Israel, have been from among the nations, from among the Gentiles, as most of us are in this room? Why is that? Well, in the first part of chapter 9, he addressed that by saying, from God's perspective, when we take the high up 100,000 foot view and see what is going on with God, we see that God is just in electing some to salvation and leaving others in their sin and condemnation that that doesn't go against any of the prophecies of the Old Testament, that that goes together with the whole theme of a a remnant that runs throughout the Old Testament, that God has a right to do that. And so he's dealt with that from the perspective of what God is doing. But now, at Romans 9, verse 30, he switches perspectives. And he comes down and he says, now let's look at it from the perspective of what man is doing. Let's look at it not just from the perspective of the sovereignty of God, but now also from the perspective of the responsibility of man. Both of these things are true. God is completely sovereign, and man is completely responsible, but now we're turning from God's sovereignty. I guess you never really turn from God's sovereignty in the Bible, but we are are taking the focus of the subject now to what is it that mankind ought to be doing to be saved? And the answer is, to have faith in Jesus Christ, not to pursue righteousness by works, not to forsake Christ and not to care, but to turn to Christ in faith and to be saved. Well, what we see here, starting in verse 30, is we see, first of all, people saved by faith who weren't even trying. People saved by faith who weren't even trying. He says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That's they have attained righteousness. They have attained a right standing with God. And it says that is a righteousness that is by faith. They hadn't even been trying. They had not pursued righteousness. This is foot foot race language. People who weren't even signed up for the race, who weren't trying, now have won it. And they haven't won it by working. They haven't won it by running. They have won it as a free gift that's given to them by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, when it says that they hadn't pursued it or they, hadn't, uh, they did not pursue righteousness, 
Uh, the, the language there is like, well, they were on the sidelines. They weren't running. But I want you to hear some other things that the Bible says about Gentiles, about those who are among the unbelieving nations outside of Israel. And you could just say about the normal course of humankind, the normal course of the human heart. He says in Acts 14, verse 16, in past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Now, that might not sound too terrible to you, but that is what kept up tripping up Israel back in the book of Judges, that everyone was doing what was right in his own sight. That's destructive. When sinful humanity is left to walk in his own ways, that is destructive. He puts it a little more clearly in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. He's, he's talking to Gentile believers like me, but he says, remember that you were at that time, that's before you came to faith in Christ, you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. No hope, godless. And you know where he puts it even stronger than that? In the book of Romans. I want to remind you some things that it says back in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 32. I'm going to read you a big chunk here because when it said they did not pursue righteousness, I want you to hear what that looks like. It says, Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. See, it's not just not pursuing righteousness, it's being filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. Listen to this, haters of God. Haters of God. That's the most serious thing on this list. Haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. When it says they did not pursue righteousness, that's what it's talking about. We're not talking about a group of people who are pretty good but just kind of indifferent to God. We are talking about haters of God. We're talking about people who looked at the creation that declares the glory of God and decided instead, no thank you, I'm going, to worship, I'm going to worship the creation itself instead of the creator, and I'm going to fulfill the desires of my flesh out of hatred for God and out of love for myself. This is 
ugly, ugly stuff. But what this verse says in Romans 10.30 is that many, many, it doesn't have the word many, but we need to know that this is the case, many, a vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation of these godless Gentiles, like me, will be brought to Christ. People who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. A righteousness that is by faith. What does that mean when he says they have attained righteousness? Another word for righteousness here would be justification. Justification, what does that mean? Well, it means, it means having all of your sins pardoned. It means being accepted in God's sight as righteous before him. Being called a saint. Not because of being saintly, but because of faith in Christ, who is the perfect righteous one, whose righteousness is given to us as a free gift by faith. It says that they had their sins forgiven, that they are counted as righteous, and it says that they did it by faith, a righteousness that is by faith. It doesn't say that they had their God-hating and, and their doing things that they knew they deserved to die for and their false worship and all of those things. It doesn't say that they had those things forgiven by making it up to God somehow. It doesn't say that they attained righteousness by some kind of uh, uh, steps of reform, some kind of a step of changing behavior. Although certainly changed behavior follows coming to Christ, but it doesn't say that they were attained righteousness by behavior. It wasn't by reform. It also wasn't by religion in terms of ceremonies, in terms of religious actions that could be done. It doesn't say that it was a righteousness that was by way of going through the waters of baptism or by taking the Lord's Supper or by any other kind of religious action. Although, again, those things do follow faith, but they don't bring about righteousness. It, what, what it does, it's not by reform, it's not by religion, it is by taking refuge in Christ alone. It is by faith in Christ. It's a righteousness that's by faith taking refuge on the rock of Christ. What, what faith is, it is a looking to Jesus. It's, it's a recognition that we are sinners, that we are the reason that I personally, you personally, are the reason why Jesus had to come in the flesh and go and die on the cross because there was no other possible way for us to be saved. It's an understanding that He is the Son of God and God the Son, that He died on the cross for sinners like us that He was buried, that He was raised from the dead on the third day victorious, having fully paid for our sins and risen to show His, his kingship over all creation. It's knowing that He ascended into heaven, that He's coming back, that He is our prophet, our priest, our king, our only hope for our righteousness. It's not just, by the way, it's not just knowing that, and it's not just affirming that that's true. It is personally taking refuge on Him as our only rock, as our only hope, but as our full hope. It's a personal rest and love and trust in Christ as our Savior.
That's what this is talking about. Those who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. It's possible that somebody who is in here right now has absolutely no concern for righteousness. It just doesn't bother you one way or the other. Maybe you're here because your parents drug you here. Maybe you're here, or is it dragged? I don't know. Maybe they drug you too, I don't know. Maybe you just have nothing in your life, nothing in your heart where you care one way or the other. You're just going to get by however you can. You just don't care. I have good news for you. That's the kind of people that this is talking about. Those who did not pursue righteousness. And to those who are pursuing it, this seems awfully unfair that I would offer this to you right now, but it's what the Holy Spirit offers to you in the Scriptures, is to say, you who have no care whatsoever about whether or not you're a good person or whether or not you're righteous or whether or not you're doing what the Bible says to do, you are offered this very moment a status of forgiveness and righteousness and child of God, not by anything that you would do, but by trusting in what Jesus has done, trusting in Him alone. So that those who have been pursuing righteousness for 60, 70, 80, 90 years, that you would receive the full inheritance and full reward just for believing. Or I should say just for what Christ has done that you receive by believing having not done anything good or bad. I just want to remind you, we had a whole section in Romans that was all about this faith. It was all about the fact that, that this salvation, this justification comes by faith and not by works. And one of the things it said is in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, it says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. And I don't want to tone that down at all. I just want to tell you right now, have you not worked? Have you not cared? Have you not pursued righteousness? Let that convict you. Let that convict you of the fact that the book of Romans that also offers you salvation first tells you that that means you're a hater of God. But then let that turn you to the fact that Jesus died for haters of God. God demonstrates His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And He will save you, not by your works, but by faith alone. So people who didn't even try, saved by faith. But here's the thing that makes a lot of people upset. People are lost who tried hard, but without faith. This is verse 31 and the first half of verse 32. It says but what, that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Again, this is foot race language. It's talking about being out there on the track, running for the goal, saying, I want to be found righteous in God's sight, and so I'm going to do it. I'm going to run the race. I'm going to pursue this. 
but it says that so, so many. Now, it doesn't mean everybody in Israel, because Paul obviously is a believer. There's many Jewish believers, even in the church at Rome, that he's writing to, but, but so many among the nation of Israel had accepted a wrong scheme in their heads. A scheme that if you look closely at the Old Testament, the Old Testament does not teach. A scheme that says that by works, I can be righteous in God's sight. When it says in in verse 31, Israel pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, there's a footnote, footnote 3 in the ESV, if you're using the ESV, as I know most of you uh, are. It, It says, Greek, a law of righteousness. Let me just say real quick, read the footnotes in your Bible, and when you see a footnote in the New Testament that starts with the word Greek, that's your indication. This is what it actually says. <laughs> and the translators know that they did a little bit too much interpretation in their English translation there. And they felt like, eh, we should probably put a footnote instead of what it really says. Now, what it really says is kind of hard to, hard to interpret. It's got a lot of interpretations throughout the years. A law of righteousness, what is that talking about? Well, I think you put it together with the context of all of the verses that are around it and the, the, the words that are about to come right after it, and I think what it means by saying that they, they uh, did not succeed or they pursued a law of righteousness, I think it's saying they pursued the law, they pursued rule-keeping in such a way that they were convinced that they could be counted as righteous before God by doing those rules. But in fact, as they tried to do those rules, as they pursued righteousness as though it were by works, they stumbled and they fell and they didn't attain it. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. There is no righteousness without godliness. Romans 1.18 when Romans, at that point, Romans 1.18 is a big marker in the book of Romans. It's where it begins describing the course of sinful mankind, whether Gentile or Jew, all of the people in the world. It says in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And when it says ungodliness and unrighteousness, that's getting at the idea God has given the Ten Commandments. And the second part of the Ten Commandments are what people usually think of when they think of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You know, don't lie, don't steal, those kinds of things. But before that are the even more important commandments. You shall have no other God before me. These commandments about godliness. So when he says the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, he's saying it's not just about whether or not you're trying to be a good person and to to show these kinds of good behaviors on the outside. It also has to do with whether or not you know and love God. You can't have righteousness and ungodliness. If you were doing all kinds of things to try to be a good person, but it's without faith in Christ, 
you are a double agent for the enemy. All right? I used the illustration a few months ago, and I'm going to use it again because I like it, of Robert Hansen. Robert Hansen started working for the FBI in 1976. Robert Hansen abruptly stopped working for the FBI in 2001 in a sting operation where he was caught making a dead drop for the Russians underneath a, a walking bridge at a park near Washington, D.C. And it turns out that for almost his entire career working for the FBI, he had been a double agent who was secretly working for the Soviet Union and then uh, Russia as it transformed into during that time. Now, if you looked at Robert Hansen during the time when he was working at the FBI, my understanding is that he seemed to be doing a good job. He seemed to be getting his tasks done. He seemed to be, you know, working through what his superiors assigned him to do. He had those who were working for him. He seemed to be managing them well. If you were just to look from the outside and say, is this guy a good FBI agent? People would have said, yeah, he's doing a good job. But do you know what's secretly happening underneath? He is not working for the benefit of the United States of America. He is in the pay of the Russians and working against America. And if you think to yourself that you can be a good person without faith in Christ, you are a double agent hating God. That's what it is. You are able in some sense, people are able in some sense to create an appearance of goodness on the outside and say, yes, I can get these things done. I can do good, these good things for people. I can align my life to this orderly kind of sense of things to where I feel good about being a good person. But in your heart, you are a hater of God if you don't have faith in Jesus Christ. You are a double agent against him. And that's what was going on with so many, sadly, sadly, among the people of Israel. Is that they had, on the one hand, this pursuit of righteousness. This thought, I can pursue being a good person and having a right standing with God by doing the law. You know, by doing the commandments, the Ten Commandments, as well as all 613 commandments in in the first five books of the Bible, as well as all of the ways that the, uh, the, the rabbis who came after interpreted those things, uh, and, and I'm trying so hard, and, and yet they missed the big thing about what the Bible says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, God says. Circumcise your hearts, God says. It's by faith that an individual can come to be saved. It's always been by faith. Abraham didn't obey the law and be counted as righteous in God's sight. Abraham believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15.6. But so many among the Jewish people had missed this, and so many people missed this, not just among the Jewish people, but all over the place now. This feeling, I can pursue good rules, I can pursue being a good person, and be counted as right in God's sight. Well, it's not the case. It's not the case. What the law of God does is it gives us three things that we can do with it, three uses of the law. I should clarify, when I say law, I'm talking about the stuff God tells us to do and the stuff God tells us not to do, the rules that God has for us. 
They're all over the Bible. They're not just in the Ten Commandments. They're not just in the Old Testament. They're all over the place. God has rules for us. But those rules can't make you right. They have three uses. And Judy pointed out to me a while back that you can say that those three uses are MRI. All right? MRI. You can remember it that way. Mirror, restraint, and instruction. Okay? The first use of the law as we come to the rules that God has for us is to be a mirror on our own hearts and our own souls to where we say, okay, here is what God has said is right and wise and good to do and what we ought not to do. And it's a mirror to show us we are guilty. We are guilty. And we need a Savior because we can't live up to this law on our own. The second thing that it does is it, it can act as a restraint to where even though it can't make people godly, it can restrain some of the sin that would have happened if the law weren't there because people are sometimes scared to, to, to break the rules, but often more scared to receive the consequences of their rule breaking. That's why there's not as many murders as there are because people don't want the consequences of being a murderer. So there's a restraint to it. There's also an instruction that the law would give such as honor your father and your mother. So here is the right things to do. That's just one example. But out of all of these things, none of it is able to make us righteous. Nothing in the law of God can make a sinner righteous before God. The most important one of those three uses of God's law that we need to remember is the first one, the M in the MRI, the mirror. The mirror. When we come to God's righteous rules, before you start to think to yourself, this is what I need to do to live up to God's righteous standard, you need to think to yourself, where does this show me in the mirror that I have not lived up to that standard? Where does it show me that my actions are not what God says that they ought to be? Where does it show me that the words that are coming out of my mouth are not what they ought to be? Where does it show me that the deepest parts of my thoughts and my affections and my will, all of my heart on inside of me, where does it show me that those things are broken and wrong before God? And when we see that, what the law is going to do is it's going to be a mirror on you and it's going to say, guilty, guilty, guilty. But when we come to Christ... What we do is we say, yes, law, you've shown that I'm guilty, but I want to come to Christ. Jesus has taken the curse and the penalty for my guilt and my shame and everything that there was that my sin carried with it. Jesus had it nailed to him at the cross. And he took it and he put it away and he rose from the dead. Guys, this is, this is, you need to know this. There's a big difference between the law and the gospel, and you haven't heard me say this in too long. And if you remember this well, then remember it well some more. But if you don't, you need to know this, all right? The law is good. God never got it wrong when he gave a single rule. The law is good, but it can't save you. You cannot be saved by good rules, you must be saved by good news. 
The law is God's good rules, but the gospel is God's good news. Good rules versus good news. You, you can't be saved by following the instructions. You can't pursue righteousness by way of the law. We pursue it by faith in Jesus Christ. The good news is not, here's what you must do. The good news is, here is what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And as Jesus hung there on the cross, he said, it is finished. And the call for us is not to finish it a little bit more for him. It's to trust in his finished work. To trust he died in my place for my sins, and he rose and he gives me life. If you're going to pursue a right standing before God, then you're going to stumble. If you're going to pursue it by law, by works, then you're going to stumble over the rock of Christ. That's what we need to know here, is that the object of saving faith is Christ. Look at the the rest of verse 32 into verse 33. He says, They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What he's doing here is he's quoting together, kind of gluing together two different verses from Isaiah. He's got Isaiah 8.14, and he's got Isaiah 28.16, and both of those are talking about this rock, this cornerstone or stumbling stone, this rock of offense. And if you, if you go to Isaiah 8.14, you don't have to do that right now because you'll get really distracted and you'll wonder who is Maher Shalal Hashbaz and stuff like that. So, so just maybe this afternoon as part of your private worship for the Lord's Day, you can go and read through Isaiah 8 and Isaiah 28 and see where these verses are. But you know what, what God says is the stumbling stone and the rock of offense that he's laying in Zion. In Isaiah 8, the stumbling stone is God. Isn't that interesting? This, this, this people is supposed to be God's people, living in God's city, going about the things that are supposed to be the things of God, and the stumbling stone, the rock of offense, is God. It's, it's so easy to get distracted by all of these trappings, all of these things, all of these things around, and all of these traditions that develop, and all, all kinds of stuff that goes together with the idea of God, and stumble over God himself. What, what an incredibly sad thing to happen. And he goes on and he says, this is the stone of stumbling, this rock of offense, but whoever believes in him, that's faith. That is salvation by faith in the Old Testament. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Guys, I want you to hear what he's talking about here. He's saying that this is not just about saying there are two different systems. Okay, You you, you could say, and it would be true to say, that on the one hand there's the system of trying to be righteous in God's sight by works, and then on the other hand there is the system of having our sins forgiven and being right with God by faith. Those are two systems, but here's the real difference between those two things. It's not just, oh, this is philosophically distinct from this other system. It's, it, it, the difference is not so much the system as the person. It, it is the person. It, it is the hurdle of all of those runners not seeing it, 
not knowing what kind of race it was that they were actually supposed to be running and running straight into the hurdles and crashing and falling down. And the, the hurdle, the rock, the stone of offense is named Jesus. And he came in the flesh and he walked among us. And his disciples beheld his glory, glory as the only, uh, as from the only Father. And, and he came and he taught and he did miracles and he endured all kinds of hardship and all kinds of insults. And he came in the flesh. And when he came in the flesh, what happened? Did people say, ah, finally, our God is here. Our God and Savior, this is the Lord of glory. Let's elevate him to the throne. No, they crucified him. They crucified him. He was to them, just as it said in Isaiah 8.14, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Here's Here's what Jesus said about himself. I could quote you a lot of verses that are very similar, teaching the same thing as this, but I'll just read one. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said right there, He is the difference. He is the difference between coming to the Father or not coming to the Father. He's the difference between being in the right way or the wrong way. He is the difference between knowing the truth and embracing falsehood. He is the difference between having eternal life or having eternal condemnation. You cannot come to God the Father. You cannot be right with God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. Another way that he put it to some of the Jewish leaders in John 8 He said, if God were your Father, you would love me. Now when he says that, you can imagine that those men who were listening to him had a few options of what they were going to think about Jesus. When he says something like that, they could think, this guy is crazy. But the rest of his life didn't really match up with that crazy idea, did it? He, He wasn't quite behaving like... You know, some guy that you might not meet on the street who is screaming and yelling and saying that he is God in the flesh. So they could have thought he was crazy, but he's not. They, they could have thought that he was a blasphemer. If you, if God were your father, you would love me. What, what an incredibly arrogant and blasphemous thing to say. That's what they did think. That's why they killed him. Or you could think, the final option, which is the true option, which is, this is true. When I look into the face of this man, I'm beholding God. I, I am beholding the Lord of glory. Jesus himself, he the person, he is the difference. And when you come to Christ, he is the rock. And we have two options. We can plant ourselves on him. We can put our feet on the rock. We can have faith in him, trust in him as the cornerstone that will not fail. Or we can trip and stumble on him and have the rock fall on us and be destroyed. Those are the two options that are presented to us in Scripture. It says in the Scriptures, 
and it's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. It says in the Old Testament, quoted in the New Testament, that the rock, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's the difference. Christ or no Christ. That's the difference between forgiveness or no forgiveness, eternal life or eternal condemnation. Faith in Jesus Christ. I want to know, though, why is Christ such a stumbling block? Why was he such a stumbling block to the Jewish people of his own time? Why does he continue to be such a stumbling block to so many people today, both Jews and Gentiles? Let me just tell you a few reasons why he was a stumbling block. One is because they had wrong expectations. Wrong expectations about what the promised Messiah of the Old Testament was supposed to do. They had an impression that when the Messiah came, that he was going to be a king, kind of like David or Solomon, that he was going to come and lead an army, that he was going to free them from the oppression of the Romans who were occupying their territory, that that he was going to bring about salvation to the nation in that way. By the way, there's a lot of people who think that that's the ultimate purpose of trust in God today, is maybe he'll change our country. I do want him to change our country, but you need to know first and foremost that he came to be a personal savior to individual sinners. And you need to personally trust in him to save and change you. You need to trust in Jesus. Don't let him be a stumbling stone because you want him to be something different than he is. Another reason is because they had wrong personal conceptions of who God is. Wrong personal conceptions of who God is. You know how I know this. It's because when they met God, they hated Him. It's very, very easy for people to say, of course I love God. I'm spiritual. I have a relationship with God. I like to pray all the time. Of course I love God. So many of the people who would have said that met Him face to face in the person of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, and rejected Him rejected him because they didn't know God. They loved some idea of God that was not God. Another reason that they would that people would trip over the stumbling son of Jesus is because of wrong theology. So for example, those among the Jewish nation who who loved the verse that we also love, hear O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one came away from that thinking that the idea was that God was a Unitarian God and couldn't possibly be a Trinitarian God, that God must be only one in one and not three in one, that it wouldn't be possible for God to come in the flesh for there to be a first and second and third person within this one true God. They had wrong theology that made them trip over the Savior of the world, Jesus. They had wrong motives. They had wrong motives for living on the earth. Their motives were things like to prosper in this life. If your motives are to prosper in this life, then it's not very likely that you'll be willing to take up your cross and follow a crucified Savior. And to be in a position where we may not be called to do it, but would be willing to give up everything in order to follow Him. That may be a reason for tripping over the stumbling stone of Jesus. Another one is wrong motives for wanting to go to heaven. Sounds strange, doesn't it? But it's true. 
Most people in the world who want to go to heaven have the wrong motives for why they want to go to heaven. Because it would have all to do with themselves and nothing to do with God. Motives like saying, I was a good enough person to get here. Absolutely not. Nobody in heaven's going to say that. Except Jesus. Wrong motives. Wrong motives for going to heaven. Wrong conception of themselves. You know what Jesus did? Jesus called people to repent. His very first sermon that he, he preached was actually identical to the, the sermon that John the Baptist was preaching. It, it, it went like this. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus was constantly calling people to repent. And you know what repentance means? It means a change of mind where you were willing to say before God and man, I was completely wrong. I was completely wrong. Jesus is Lord. I can't make my own way. I am a sinner. Jesus is Lord. And I was wrong about everything. And I leave that old way of thinking behind so that I can follow Jesus into his kingdom. But that wrong conception of self thinking, oh, maybe I can be good enough. Maybe I don't really need to, to repent. Maybe, I, maybe my thinking's pretty good and just needs to be tweaked just a little bit. Well, Jesus absolutely is a stone of stumbling to those who think that thing, that kind of thing. But the last thing there, that wrong conception of self, that's, that's the biggest one. It's, here's the reality, that God saves sinners by faith alone. And God condemns good people who don't have faith. God suggests that I personally and you personally must repent and put your faith in someone else. That's the main reason why Jesus is such a stone of stumbling and rock of offense. People don't want to think that. And sometimes even people who call themselves Christians and people who have attended church for many years, sometimes they are stumbling over the stone of Christ. And if you ask them, are you a Christian and do you trust in Christ? They'd say yes, but they're unconverted and they're rejecting Jesus because he is a rock of offense to their view of their own self-sufficiency. They think to something to themselves like, well, of course I am a sinner. That's why I need Jesus to make up for my insufficiencies. That's why I need Jesus to make up for the things that are wrong with me. You see what's wrong with that? That's saying, I am good enough to this point, and I'll just trust Jesus for a little bit extra to get me over the line. Do you know what line that gets you over? The line into hell. Turn from it, if that's where you are. Turn from it, and don't trust Jesus for your inadequacies. Trust Jesus for everything. Throw away every bit of whatever is in your mind that says, I have an, a righteousness of my own that I can present before God, and if it's not good enough, then Jesus will make up the rest. That's the path to hell. The path to heaven is, I trust in Christ alone for all my righteousness. I, I throw away any idea that I have that I could add anything to His work, and I trust in Him alone. The whole race that I ran so far is worthless 
compared to what Jesus has already accomplished for me at the cross. Don't let Jesus be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to you. Trust in Him alone, not as though it were by works, not even a little bit of your works plus Jesus, but as though it is by faith because it is. Faith meaning turning to Him alone, trusting in Him alone. And there's good news at the end here. There's good news. Whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. For those who don't believe in Him, there is nothing in eternity but shame and suffering. Eternal conscious torment. Hating God forever and ever. But for us who trust in Christ, those who turn and see Him not as a stone of stumbling, but as our cornerstone, our rock in our salvation, when we trust in the person of Christ, we will not be put to shame. Even though Satan would stand and list out every reason why we ought to be put to shame and would stand and accuse us as the accuser and throw every bit of our sin back into the face of God and into the face of us however he could, if we trust in Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness and we will not be put to shame. He is the way and the truth and the life. He is, not you. He is. Trust in Him, and you won't be put to shame. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Jesus is this great rock. Lord, He is the stone that the builders rejected, but He is the cornerstone. Father, we pray again, just as we've prayed over a number of weeks, we pray that as this text calls our attention to the reality of, of so few among the Jewish people having come to embrace the Messiah that you sent to the Jew first and also to the Greek, we, we pray again that more and more of our Jewish friends and neighbors would come to faith in Jesus. And God, we pray that more and more of our Gentile friends and neighbors would come to faith in Jesus too. We thank you that Jesus has come not just for one ethnicity or one kind of people, or uh, Lord, that he came for sinners from every tribe and tongue and nation. God, I thank you that as, as former haters of God, that you have loved us and that we love because you first loved us. And so I pray that if there's anybody, anybody here who is, is a, lost apart from Christ, Lord, they, they may be in that position of not caring, not pursuing righteousness, or they may be in the position of, of pursuing righteousness as though it were by the law. Lord, I pray that you would turn them out of those things from self-righteousness or from, from blatant rebellion, and I pray that you would rest their souls upon the rock of Christ alone for their salvation. And as those who trust in Jesus, thank you that we won't be put to shame Help us to live and be sanctified as, as Christ has commanded. Help us to love and honor you, to live out not of a sense of, of building our own righteousness, but out of a sense of gratitude for what you've given us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.